Good morning, everyone. Wait, wait, you guys got to at least give me a Halloween good morning or something. Yeah, okay, I, you guys, I, that's good. I hope you're excited for your kids later that they're going to go out and do something. All right, okay, well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad that you're here. We're in our last, last part of Back to the Future. Uh, we've been talking about going back in order to move towards our future. We've been talking about the first century church, prayer, how important it is for us to be focused on prayer, looking at the first century church, trying to get back to the basics, trying to understand that's our foundation. We talked about it. We actually did it on October 17th. We had a prayer service, which was awesome. We had everybody get involved in some fashion and even had a time where we repented and confessed sin. Because as we're chartering through, you know, just we're working through uncharted territory. We're not sure where we're going and the uncertainty and the waves are tossing against the ship, metaphorically. And we're, we're trying to find out where that little rudder that's kind of leading us through the waves and the troubled times that we're dealing with right now. The uncertainty of not just the situation, but the uncertainty of our emotions, You follow what I'm saying? The uncertainty of what's happening today. Each of us are becoming more sensitive, more frustrated, more fearful because we don't know what's in front of us. Typically in the past, before all of this that's happened in the last 20 months, we would kind of get an idea of where the waters would be ahead of us. We would know where we're going with our compass. Now the compass, the needle's just going all over the place, right? It's moving left and right, and we don't know which direction to go. And we're struggling. And we wish we could just figure it out. We're hitting that compass and saying, come on, work. Come on, show me exactly where I'm supposed to go. And the needle just keeps messing around. And that frustrates you a little bit. You don't know where you're going. You're driving. Your GPS is messing with you. It's making you do circles. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, right? You're driving. You're like, Elsie, be quiet. I don't want to listen to you no more. My wife calls her Elsie. That was an old one. Remember the joint where you put it up on the dashboard and it would sit there and you make sure it stayed there and now it's on your phone, hook it up to your navigator, you know, whatever. Now it's, it's just different, right? Well, see, going back to the future is our compass, right? It's our GPS because it's the Word of God. God established it from the very beginning. The Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, thing is, we still have the Holy Spirit. Amen? All right, so the Holy Spirit's our compass. Amen? All right, so now if you're you're, you're just walking with me on that, that's whom we need to lean on. Amen? All right, so we don't want to grieve or quench the Spirit because when we get caught up in our emotions, when we get caught up in the struggle, when we get our eyes caught up in the problem, when we're sitting there looking at the compass and trying to hit it so the needle doesn't go left and right and all over the place, we shouldn't really be looking at that. We should be looking to God. He's the one who we need to be steadfast, immovable, moving forward, focused on Jesus, right? Amen? All right, okay. All right, good. I'm glad you guys are with me right now. All right, so now we're going to look at another, as we've been saying, this has been a study in the book of Acts because you can pick from different things in the book of Acts. You're looking at it, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 18. So turn with me there. You'll see it. I just want you to kind of keep your 
your finger there because we're going to be moving around a little bit this morning. So Acts chapter 18, for some of you that have the actual physical Bible, some of you may have a device, you pull out your phones, you pull out your iPads, whatever it is, it's in front of you. Now, I just want to just be able to make sure that we understand that we're still in part two. I'm calling it part two, a culture of biblical community. Because with biblical community, we have to understand it's not what we like in common here on earth, but community, biblical community centered in Jesus Christ, the Christocentric message of the gospel that goes from the Old Testament into the New Testament. We see continuity, not discontinuity, but continuity that's not a replacement theology, but a continuity that says that we're progressive and moving forward because Revelation is progressive. I just shared some theology with you guys. It's just simply saying that it's connected. So in its Christocentric mindset, when you're looking in the Old Testament, you're seeing that the Messiah is yet to come. But we in the New Testament look back and say, oh, that's why it says this in the Old Testament about the Messiah to come. That's Jesus, because that's Christocentric. He's centered. He's the one whom we look to to bring honor and glory and praise. Can I get an Amen. Amen. All right, I just want to make sure you're with me today, all right? Because I don't care that it's Halloween. I care that we're seeking God right now. Amen? Amen. All right, so get your prayer on, get your mind on, because we're moving forward, okay? So now, as a 21st century biblical community in a Western American context, we are often faced with what defines church ministry and biblical community. And as we understand, the primary of the church is to what? The, pro- the, the primary and the focus and the purpose is what? To make disciples. So that's a biblical community. How we do it, the methodology, is open. It's open game. But making disciples is a key because it's called training. Jesus trained the 12. He had three specific. He didn't just hand them something. He trained them for three years. They watched him as he did ministry. Came and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his ministry to bring forth the kingdom of God. And he brought uneducated people with him to train them. And he showed them what they must do. Why? Why was the case? So that acts could start. The church could start. You follow me? So this way, that's what the training, that's why biblical community and making disciples, because Jesus made disciples, 12 of them, and they started the church. We see that in Acts chapter 1. So we look at it and we see universally church growth leaders discuss the many methods of discipleship. Knowingly, it's centered in Christ. That's the key. The message is an absolute. The method is a non-absolute. You have form and function. And the mandate is discipleship making. So biblical community needs to be said. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we understand that they had to go and travel all over to share the gospel. But here's the mission. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Jesus speaking, in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and at the end of the earth. So that's the mission, which we see with the disciples, the apostles, and then further we see with Paul, with the three missionary journeys. And so, am I on? Can you all hear me? Okay, I'm sorry, I couldn't, I just want to make sure I'm on. So each of these areas are covered in a book of Acts, and that's why we're talking about this particular 
importance here. So we have to understand the message has to be accurate. How do we know that? Because as it progressed throughout the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit is leading, he's the leading agent to lead God's people and especially the leaders and the apostles. What was happening was he had to make sure at that time, because we're looking from a lens with the 21st century lens, but they're in the first century. So the, the message of the gospel was unfolding. Okay, It was still unfolding through Judea and Samaria and uttermost parts of the world. So as it continued to move through Asia Minor, it moved from city to city. And God began to raise up new leaders. And one of them was Apollos. Apollos was one of those leaders that we'll see right here. And he's preparing for something to happen here. So just look with me. So it's important for us to understand that biblical community requires accuracy. And so we're going to look at that. Accurate, accuracy in what area? One is truth. We have to make sure that Biblical community requires that accurate truth. And as we see Apollos, he's, been, he's on the scene now. We'll know that he's in another book, which is called 1 Corinthians, and he's one of the leaders. But here's what it says about Apollos. Chapter 18, verse 24 and 25, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus a central location for the church to start. Timothy was there for about three years, along with Paul. Paul went in, and then Timothy had to come back. And it says he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Key phrase there. Many scholars today are not sure whether he was truly saved at that moment as we're reading that verse or whether he was saved a little bit further. Some are in different camps. Uh, one of the professors at Dallas Theological Seminary that I'd had, has, he's in a different camp than I would even agree with. But yet, I'm seeing it a little bit differently because I see it unfolding. Because Apollos was a Jew. That's key. Because if you understand that he's a Jew... That means he's learning about this Messiah is yet to come. Remember the Jews, when they were reading the scriptures of the Old Testament, they were looking to this Messiah yet to come, but to come in array as a king with royalty. But this Jesus didn't come in that way, right? He didn't come. He came in in a stinky old manger, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But here they were thinking about who's this Messiah to come. So he was learned. He was a learned man. He was a native of Alexandria, part of Egypt, and Alexandria was the Roman seat in Egypt. So it was one of the largest cities of the empire and had a large Jewish population, occupying all of one of the five districts of the city in the majority of a second district. So it was, a, it was an area where people knew. There was an area where people were learning and growing in culture and philosophy and religion. And this was the third missionary journey and this man is arriving in Ephesus. And the word means that he's eloquent, meaning learned and cultured. So he, he's, he's being taught in a cultural society. And he's competent because he means, it means that he's skilled in a specific area of study. So he's learning about Judaism and he's learning about the Old Testament. Now, this is key as you're thinking about this as he's studying. So he was instructed, which means formally taught, of the Old Testament writing. So here was a man who wasn't uneducated. He was a man who was educated, 
who was taught formally, and here he is, he's now learning about the Old Testament, and he's speaking and teaching now accurately as Luke is writing. It goes on, it says, he's been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, this is key because the way in the book of Acts is mentioned of the way of Christianity. It wasn't yet mentioned as Christian until chapter 11, but the way was mentioned of the apostles that were establishing the church. So in Acts 16, 17, it says when, when, the, when Paul was placed in prison with Silas, it's, it said this, it says, men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So whenever you see the word way, it's something to do with salvation. Some scholars would believe then the way was termed in the first century that way, and the Apollos began to understand a little bit about the Old Testament and the Messiah to come. But remember, when Jesus was first born, some Jews believed the Messiah would be a physical king on earth to rescue them from Rome. This is key. Yet Jesus was born as the Redeemer of Israel and the entire world. That's where we get the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, Abraham, the father of many nations, Jew and Gentile, from the very beginning. And here was Jesus who came to do the same. So the way of the Lord can be interpreted as possibly from the Old Testament spiritual and moral standards God required of his people. Let me give you an example. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23 and 24, it says, Moreover, as for me, as Samuel spoke, as far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by, by ceasing to pray for you. So guess what? Samuel was saying, if we don't pray, we're actually sinning. You ever think of that? That was one part. But here's what he says also. He says, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Isn't that what we should be doing today? We should be doing today, revering the Lord and serving him faithfully. That's the good and right way. For consider what great things he has done for you. Meaning focus on God and the struggle and the difficulty and the uncertainty when you don't know where you're going, when the GPS isn't working, when the compass isn't working. We to look to God, fear him, revere him, and serve him and look to him, not to look to the problem or the situation or look to the GPS and wonder why is it not directing me. And so it's important. He understood all of this. Apollos understood all of this. But yet, did he come to faith in Jesus? Well, now the next part of it is he's fervent in spirit. So most scholars would believe that, that he's fervent in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is moved on his heart, and now he's saved. So it, it can be interpreted he experienced the Holy Spirit. But in, in my thinking, this is my thinking. As a Jew, he was informed by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was the true Messiah, to come for the Jews and the Gentiles. He was excited to recognize it, but did not have a full understanding. He taught his part accurately because he was trained and learned, but did not understand the fullness of the message of the gospel. Because we see that he only understood the baptism of John. That's key. And I'm just telling you, in a teaching element, the truth is not the baptism of John. Because here, look, we know what the baptism of John is. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, it simply says, I baptize you with water for repentance, John said. 
the Baptist, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, where fire really isn't about excitement, fire is judgment. The Holy Spirit judges us, right? Right? Right. How does he judge us? It's called conviction. He convicts us. And when he convicts us, it's not for the sake of punishment, but it's for the sake of drawing us closer to the Father. When he convicts us, it's because the intention is to reprove us and correct us and to make us adequate. Why? Because we go off. We need to be realigned back to the, to the center, Christ-centered, right? And then what we do is we go left and we go right, and then what happens is the Holy Spirit has to come and convict us. And so the Holy Spirit's living in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it says this, For when one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, are all who were made to drink of one spirit. There's not a second birth. I don't believe in that. That's charismatic theology. However, I believe what's going on in the conservative church is we're quenching and grieving the spirit because what we do is we mask our sin by just simply saying it's an emotion or a personality trait. That's something I wrote in my book. And I'm saying that's not how we're supposed to be doing that. See, when we surrender and the conviction comes, we're called to confess our sin. And we are, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not that God expects perfection out of us because he demanded perfection, but we can't meet that demand. Jesus had to meet that demand. And that's why when he died on the cross and he met that demand, now we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And when we get baptized, what do we celebrate? Jesus resurrected, right? It's the gospel. So we publicly proclaim to everyone as, as baptized that we are in Christ, and so we want to walk with Christ. God's not expecting perfection. He doesn't expect that we have it all together. In fact, we're going to make more mistakes than get it right, right? Are you guys not convinced? We make more mistakes than we get it right, amen? We need to convince ourselves of that because we expect too much of each other. But when we confess our sin, how can we turn a person away? We can't. Because that's what brings unity. Not who gets the right way and the other one is the wrong way. Working together through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where it's all worked out. That's why when you understand about the baptism of John versus the baptism of, of, of the Spirit of God, we see that even the Holy Spirit himself. Where it says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you through all truth. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will not take what is mine and declare it to you. Then he goes on, he says, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He's talking to the believer, talking to the disciples. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, I, a little while and you will see, you will see me. Meaning he said in verse 7, I must go that the Holy Spirit must come. Guess what? Who's the spirit of truth? The Holy Spirit. And that's who we need in our walk with God. That's like, so pretty much what it's saying is the gospel is Trinitarian. 
right? The Father demands perfection. Jesus meets that demand as a perfect substitutionary atonement for sin. The Holy Spirit enters into the heart of the believer to testify of the truth of Jesus and to bring him glory, the God glory, the Father. Remove the Father, there's no gospel. Remove the Son, there's no gospel. Remove the Holy Spirit, there's no gospel. Can you imagine? Could we ever even be here as a church without the Holy Spirit? No, y'all are not convinced. Could we be here without the Holy Spirit? No, there's no gospel. Then we're wasting our time. We might as well leave, pack up, and go. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to lead us. We can't grieve him or quench him because then that holds us up on the work that he wants us to accomplish as his local church. We have to get that. We've got to understand that. That's the basis of biblical community. That's what God's called us to that. Number two, training. We need to have some training. That's where, that's again, that's where Apollos was in verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Again, the word accurately. This is key. Because here you have Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife, who has been trained by Paul. And he says that he's been speaking boldly in verse 25, but he's expressing himself, in, or I'm sorry, verse 26, he's, he's speaking boldly, which means expressing oneself freely, speaking freely, openly, and fearlessly. So here was Apollos speaking yet with the baptism of John. Now, if the baptism of John was sufficient, as I just shared, it was not, but if it was, then Priscilla and Aquila wouldn't come alongside and say, hey, Come here, we got to talk. We got to talk. Come here, Apollos. I love your heart, man. It's good, man. I want to keep your heart going, but we got to talk. And what that means is they, they brought him aside, which means in the Greek, it means they went aside in private. Scholars would believe they went to a house to sit down for a while and to explain and train him about the importance of the way of God, salvation, more accurately. Now, this is important. Because when we talk about that explaining, it's highlighted that training is necessary in every context. Training is what we call discipleship. And we have to understand this. And watch this. We need to be trained to work, right? right? Why? When we're trained at work, why are we trained? So when we execute our job, we can be efficient and effective for the company we work for. Why? So they can be productive we can be productive, and then they can have profits for the company. Without the profits, we could lose our jobs, right? And so why do we train our children in the way of the Lord? So they will, they will be people of godly character and servants of the Lord with great competence. They will be good representatives of the Lord, not just of us, but good representatives. Why do coaches train players with different drills so they can be game ready, right? So when the struggles come and the difficulties come, the training is necessary when the struggles come. So the reason why we're struggling, if we're struggling now, if any of us are struggling, God has created a discipleship training so that when, not if, the struggle comes, we know what to do because we're game ready, right? And you're right. So God is doing that work. And he says, it explain now, it says, to convey information by careful elaboration. So explaining wasn't just haphazardly explaining and saying, here, here's something, go take it, run with it. It's let's sit down and let's talk about it. 
That's important in discipleship. We're failing in the 21st century to do that because we're busy. It's not a priority. We call discipleship whatever we want to call it. And we don't make it number one priority in the church. We struggle with that. Now, I understand because we're busy in a Western world. Western world mindset is individualistic. It's not community-based. It's not corporately-based. So we have to work harder. But why we struggle is because we have to work harder and we don't want to work harder. We want it to be convenient and easy and comfortable because in our culture, that's what we have. It's very comfortable. What's most convenient? We pull out our phones. We pull out our schedules and say, yeah, I'll put you in. I'll throw you in about three minutes. I got a three-minute meeting with you. I'll put it in exactly three minutes. You got three minutes to talk to me, 180 seconds. Let me know what you're thinking. That's what we do. We just set up our schedules. Remember years ago, some older people like, like me, where you wouldn't even have a schedule, right? It would probably be in one of those, right, Pastor Dennis? We'd have one of those planners. We'd put it all together. But we didn't have, like, five-minute meetings, ten-minute meetings. We'd set it out for a good hour, two hours. It seems like we're just trying to throw everything in to make it convenient, to work it all out, try to get all this work done. But today... We can't, we got to stop doing that. We got to fight it in our culture. That's where it's important for us to sit back and learn and explain. That's why in Acts 18, verses 1 through 3, we know that Priscilla and Aquila were trained by Paul. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus. Recently, came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. He remained with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade, meaning he was working and ministering, working and discipling. He was a bivocational church planter and he did great work because he built up disciples. That's why Priscilla and Aquila were able to go back and train Apollos. Number three, biblical community requires accurate testimony. Accurate testimony. So important here. Now watch this now. It says, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, which is Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Now the language is changing. Luke is writing. Goes from the baptism of John to now grace and believed, which is similar in all the writing of Lukean writing. When he's talking about grace, it's a message of the gospel. When he's talking about believed, it's not Judaism. It's not the baptism of John. He's now opening up because it's unfolding. The teaching's unfolding. There's a testimony that's coming. Verse 20 says, for the powerful, for he powerfully re refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that Jesus, the Christ, was Jesus. Different now. See how it changed from the baptism of John to now Jesus. Some would say, scholars would say, well, he didn't get baptized. Well, we don't know. We don't know if he got baptized or not. Maybe Luke didn't write about that. Some scholars believe that he was already saved. I would say that he was open to it, leaning towards it. But I think after this meeting with Priscilla and Aquila, he came to faith in Christ. Because it's not about the intellect. It's not about what we know. 
It's living out what we know. It's the doing and the being together. If we're being in Christ, we need to be doing something about it. It's not just the doing in itself, nor we can say we're a Christian, but we're not doing something. It can't be one or the other. they got to come together. That's discipleship. That's biblical community. When we come together, that's what we should be doing. That's what was happening. Because, see, this is what happened in his life. Because when it says that the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples in verse 27 to welcome him, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 3, that Paul was talking about how certain apostles were commended and recommended. He goes on, he says, we are beginning to commend ourselves again. Are we beginning to do that or do we need to? He says, as some do letters of recommendation to you or from you, you yourselves are our letter. He's talking to the Corinthians, the believers of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Meaning then when a brother came to faith in Jesus Christ, especially a prominent leader like Apollos, they wrote letters to the church moving forward because they couldn't text, they couldn't email, they couldn't call them. They had to send them ahead with the letter to show the approval from Jerusalem. And so they would go and they would get an approval from Paul. They would get an approval from some prominent apostle and they would move them forward. And they were recommended and commended because the training, it's the truth and the training and the testifying that was important. They just wouldn't send anyone off. They had to make sure that they were accurate with their teaching, accurate with the truth, accurate with their testimony. That's important for all of us when we understand that's true biblical community. Biblical community is not just throwing anyone out there. We've got to be trained, and it takes some time, but when we do, we'll see effective ministry. And it does take time, but we can see God at work. But I love this last week. So, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. You know, uh, in this passage right here in Acts, the word showing shows a contrast from the baptism of John. And the showing gives this idea of demonstrating something that is true. When we show something, that means we're convinced. And when we're convinced, we're going to live it out. And we're going to live it out through the most difficult times in our lives, when we feel like we want to give up, when we feel like walking away from God, when we're tired. It's the truth that keeps us moving forward because the truth reminds us that we need Jesus. The truth reminds us that we should not be looking for the approval of man. The truth reminds us that we don't look to get into the crowd. The truth reminds us that we're serving and loving and worshiping and knowing and intimately knowing to the audience of one. Amen? So it's our God who we focus on. When trials and troubles and difficulties, when people don't like you, when people can't stand you, when they wish you were gone, you got to say, wait a minute, Lord, I'm serving you. I'm focused on you. So when the world hates you because you're a believer, you got to focus on Jesus. See, I don't think it's the unbelievers that's getting us, that's hitting us hard. I don't think unbelievers really care. I don't think they don't care if we meet here or not. I think we're hurting each other. I think sometimes we do that as Christians. And we've got to stop doing that. We've got to get back to the unity that Christ has called us to in one spirit and one body. 
bearing one another, tolerating, being patient with one another, so that ultimately God gets the glory. Amen? So it's what we have to do. That's what we have to focus on because the, the struggles are real. It's ultimately difficult and challenging. You know, right now, we have a great challenge before us. We have a challenge, a financial challenge, but I think it's, it's bigger than that. It's not just a financial challenge. It's a buy-in challenge. See, God calls us, we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks through a sermon series called Level Up. We're going to talk about time, talents, and the giving of money. But it's all his, right? You know, Matthew 25, it makes that clear. But the time and the talents and the money that God allows us to have, it's all his. And so the challenge is real. And I just want to encourage us as biblical community, it's time for us to buy in to God. You may not buy in and like me as much, but you got to buy into what God is doing. You may not like to buy in what the pastoral team is doing right now, but you got to buy into what God is doing. You may not like certain Christians or people or what we're doing here, but ultimately we have to buy into what God wants to do here. This is God's work, and we're asking God to lead us because it's his work, it's his vision. And as it's his vision, we're asking him to lead us out to what he wants us to do. So I want to encourage you. Uh, to continue to do that. And in a short minute, I'm going to have two people come up uh, just to share the importance of what we're looking for in this challenge. I want you guys just to sit back for a minute because I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask a, a couple to come up, and we're going to share, uh, they're going to share a little bit about um, what, what God has done in their lives in the past and how we can move forward in this challenge for this 90-day challenge in front of our church at Grace Church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, we need you today. As was mentioned last week, the financial struggle that we're going together as a church, the challenge that's before us, and yet you've called us as your people to give first fruits. And as you have called us to give us first fruits um, to you, you've convicted us for that command. And so, Father, today, I pray that your spirit would move in us and through us to challenge us even so. As we hear a testimony even now from Carlos and Melinda Perez, I pray that we will encourage ourselves to hear their story about how you changed their heart toward giving, time and talents, and even their money that's ultimately yours. So, Father, please help us as we look to you. May you challenge us even now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Can I get Carlos and Melinda Perez to come on?